our entire history is ideas of people coming up with things that have been successful. All you have to do is basically empower that and say, when you're here, you're allowed to come up with ideas. And we're going to listen to those ideas. Hello and welcome to That Tech Show, the show that reveals the magicians behind the magic that is everyday technology. Good evening, Chris. Good evening, Sam. And good evening, listener. Of course, of course. Thank you for letting us into your ears. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Do you not think about that? I like to think about that. Somebody right now is plugging in their headphones and welcoming us into their head. They might be going for a run. Mm. They might be in the car. More than one person might be listening to this. Simultaneously, I mean, obviously there is more than one. Well, I hope there's more than one person listening to this. We have checked the stats recently, haven't we? Welcome our only listener. No. <laughs> Maybe I should be a bit more late night radio DJ voice. Well, it depends, doesn't it? It might be morning. You could have to get into a sort of morning. That way we need to be more exciting and, and enthusiastic about the day. I don't know. These go out at 5.30 in the morning, exactly. so I don't know who's listening at that time, but apparently that is the time that you guys like to listen to this stuff, or at least get the podcasts out the way while you're making your morning coffee, um, or in the car, or in the bus, or wherever you are, anyway. Well, welcome, anyway. Thank you for tuning in. It's been um, a bit of an eventful week as well, because uh, since last time, since the last episode, um, there's been, an, well, since we last recorded the last intro, there's been an invasion in Ukraine, hasn't there? So that's um, pretty monumental. And uh, I think the thing that's probably most interesting for us, apart from the, you know, the, um, the insanity of the whole thing, is uh, probably Anonymous's attacks on Russia, which I think are, are fascinating. Absolutely. And it's, and it's interesting the way, I mean, just when you, when you think about war nowadays, it's, it's very much a, uh, a, digital and and technological war as it is you know with the with the the physical nature of guns and bombs and all the rest of it it's almost more effective to be doing what anonymous are doing um and, and making that making and and the every man can make a stand you know or every woman we don't know um so it's certainly uh it's certainly painting a picture of of things when you when you have um anonymous taking part in it or doing their bit. Yeah, I think it's really interesting the way they've approached mm -hmm. sort of like shutting off gas pipelines and things like that. Mm -hmm. I think it's very clever to be able to do that. Um, and that's going to have a huge effect as well as actually those. I think it's quite quite interesting the, the way that they're approaching sanctions and and um, shutting Russia mm -hmm. off from like yep. swift banking and things like that. I think that's quite a clever approach. To do. I mean, I'm not, not in any way suggesting that it's, uh, it's the only mm -hmm. approach and maybe they've... Um, that it feels like the West has been slow to respond, but I do think that the sanctions that they have done of like cutting Russia off, I think it's quite clever, really. And it's nice to be a, taking a technology approach to to things for a change because it doesn't often seem uh, that that is the thing that happens for uh, um, politicians, really. And 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 you sort of start to feel like you can now make a stand, actually, because are you, you know, thinking about it, are you doing things that are, are fueled or, you know, are funding the the war effort on Russia's side? So, you know, um, gas, as an example, being, uh, I, I'm not sure whether the UK are such a huge importer of Russian gas, but it's just looking at your looking at your world and thinking am i am i using services or, or products that are, are, are funding um the russian effort so you know i we can feel a lot more empowered to to make those sorts of changes so it's um 
as again, I, I was talking to my dad about this today. It's just such an interesting approach to attacking, and it just goes to show, you know, you're, you're stopping the bloodline um, into Russia, and and every person can take part in that or think about taking part. And it's such a shame that this is happening anyway. It just seems so unnecessary. I mean, some of the uh, some of the best development teams I've worked with have been Ukrainian. And uh, it just seems awful that this is happening to them just through misinformation and some crazy person's desire to, uh, you know, reconcile the Soviet Union. It just seems absolutely nuts. With all that being said, do <laughs> I do have some other news, actually, some more positive news. Let's uh, let's pick up the pace a little bit. <laughs> let's pick up the pace. All right. Yeah, we've gone all political and deep. Um, yeah, we're getting some cats. Oh, meow. That's exciting, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> how was that for a response? <laughs> yeah, we're we're uh, we're adopting some uh, some cats. They're coming from the United Arab Emirates. Um, it will be a couple of um, months, I think, before they arrive. But we should be getting uh, three Arabian mowers that have previous uh, kittens, but they were they've been abandoned on the street and rescued. And so we'll be rescuing some cats from uh, from the UAE. Congratulations. That should be exciting. Yeah, it's been two two years without cats, so it'll be nice to uh, to have them. So back. you're a cat person, Quite excited then. about it. Oh, very much so. Yes. So this this three that we're getting, uh, that will be adding to the the three that we've had in the past, I suppose. So they'll be our in our sixth. Uh, we up to our sixth cat, I suppose. That uh, the the wife and I have had. Mm. We're cat people, not 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 human people. If not that makes human sense. Be- yeah, no, absolutely, uh, absolutely. There's no kids on the horizon, just kittens, just kittens, <laughs> crazy cat people. <laughs> now, I used to be, I used to be very much a dog person, but I, um, I don't know. I appreciate now, as as you know, uh, as I get older, I didn't want to say that. <laughs> um, you know, having an or busy, you know, just as busy as well. You know, having a cat is is certainly uh, it's nice to have something that can sort of take care of themselves. Whereas the dog's very needy, and it's not fair in London half the time. You know, our houses aren't big enough, and and all the rest of it. So, very much um, warmed up to cats. I used to think they would they're out to kill me. <laughs> you know, you never maybe really know. Maybe they are. I don't know. Maybe they're just biding their time. But uh, I, uh, yeah, I used to not really know what's going going through their mind and whether they're going to scram me. But I think that's just my bad luck with cats. And then as time goes on, the more friendly conversations I've had with cats, and I've learned to uh, to just understand that they're just like you and me. <laughs> well, we're hoping that we'll be able to get um, the the buttons. Have you seen this? You get the the buttons with recordings on, so the cat can use them to speak to you. This sounds insane. It is, yeah. So essentially, you have like a set of buttons, and it'll have certain things on it, like food, um, angry, happy, sad, outside. That's a dog thing, right? Surely, can cats? Does cat, do cats know this? Cats are more. Uh, cats are more intelligent than dogs. Yeah, but if you be- if you don't if you don't get this, listener, then you know if you think I'm wrong, then you know, come and have a word with me. But <laughs> cats are definitely more intelligent than dogs. Okay, so we can expect some your your TikTok to be revitalized with cat tricks and. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. This is definitely going to be a TikTok, uh, TikTok thing. TikTokable. TikTokable. Yeah. Oh, in other news as well, I've got a new camera. Because uh, obviously my quest to try out pretty much every home automation device, I've now got a Wise camera. Mm-hmm. Have you seen these? No, nope. it's quite cool. Um, the listeners can't see it, but Sam can see it. It's actually looking at him now. Um, it's a little tiny thing. It's quite small, and it's an outdoor an outdoor cam. Actually, it says it's an outdoor indoor cam, but it seems um, 
probably a little bit better so far than the Ring Cam and the Arlo Cam, because mm-hmm. I've tried both of these as well. It records to SD, which I think should be quite good. So, um, and it does continuous recording too. And it seems to have a low subscription cost. So I've not really tried it fully yet, but um, it's the third one that's getting a test. So we'll see how that behaves. It's quite small. It's quite dinky, much smaller than the other ones. But Ring, um, it looks, so, looks to me, it looks bigger than the Ring and, and less. I mean, the Ring is a doorbell with a camera built in, right? No, so you're talking about the doorbell cam, which I think is a problem, actually, because some people have had their doorbell cams nicked. So <laughs> yeah, they're getting more popular Because <laughs> they're now. quite easy. But I do, have, um, I do have a ring on my front door, but it's not a ring doorbell cam. It's just the ring stick-up cam. Mm-hmm. And I also have an Arlo on the front of my house, and I have a ring floodlight on the back of the house and an, another Arlo on the back of the house as well. Mm-hmm. Um, the, this is definitely the smallest of a lot of them. So mm-hmm. I, I think it's probably the more discreet so we'll see how it performs anyway. It's it's only on inside at the minute mm-hmm. and uh, is waiting for me to go and drill a hole into some brickwork and get it up, but we'll uh, we'll see how that performs. Exciting. So, who have we got on the show today? Wow, I'm glad you asked. Uh, this week we have Chris, Chris Hood is on the show this week, actually, a Googler who is head of business platform strategy and host of the similarly named Google podcast, That Digital Show. Mm. Chris talks us through his rich history of how working in a movie theater helped to develop a love for movies and media. This led to his work transforming how users engage in content at Fox for shows like Glee, Gotham, Sleepy Hollow and American Idol. We talk about his passion for gaming and his work at Electronic Arts. And of course, we'll talk about the Google, what it takes to get hired there, the power of Google's data and what it means to be head of business strategy. Well, that's a lot of ground to cover, so you can thank our editor, Simon, for keeping this conversation on track. Thank you, Simon. So without further ado, here is Chris Hood. Hello, my name is Chris Hood, and I do a lot of things. (laughs) I am a digital strategist and tech guru, we'll say, and I currently work at Google. So how did you get to being a tech guru at Google? What's the path to get there? <laughs> Taking notes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Let me take my notebook out one second. Right. Carry on. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that's a question a lot of people are asking. The beauty of it is, is it's actually fairly easy. You just go and apply and hope that you get a call back. I, I get a lot of calls and emails and messages. I, how can I find a job at Google? And the first thing I do always is say, Go to Google Careers, do a search, find a job that you're interested in, and apply. You know, sometimes it really is that simple. Now, granted, there's a lot more on top of that. You're going to have to have some experience in the role that you want to be in. You're going to have to have some uh, flair to you in in terms of personality and interest and, and things like that, which we can definitely get into. Uh, but really, it's it's about following your passion. And I think for a lot of people, you know, they're just looking for a job and it's not necessarily something they're passionate about. And I think that's the big key here, especially in technology, is is those individuals who can still express their passion for something are going to be more successful than just, say, somebody who's in technology who just wants to have a technology role. Did did you apply for a role in or did they come for you? (laughs) 
uh, a little of both. Actually, I was recruited, but in the process of being recruited, I then applied. My story is a little interesting. I actually was doing some freelance and consulting work for Google, and I was doing that for about a year, and then they liked what I was doing for them, and then they said, you know, you should apply because I think you would be a great fit for this particular role we had. And so I went through the process and I did it. And uh, but I had my choice, right? I I could have done A or B type of thing, but I decided to, yeah, why not? Uh, it's Google. I'll take to a leap of faith here and I'll apply, see what happens, and it all worked out. And I'm very happy about it. Is it something that you had you wanted to work for Google for a while before you actually landed there? No. Well, look, if I go all the way back to my starting job career all the way back into uh, 80s. Um, <laughs> was that an intentional coffin there? <laughs> yeah. I remember uh, I was working at a retail software store and this gentleman came in and I was helping him solve a problem with his computer. And again, this was in 80s. No one had computers. We didn't have the internet. And he said to me, you know, you would be great at my company. You should come and apply. And I was like, uh, yeah, you know, I just wrote it off as some crazy dude. But I look back on that moment and I'm thinking, heck, that guy could have worked for Microsoft or something. You know, I, I don't know. I, I just didn't think about it in that context at that time. And then throughout my career, it was always this, well, you know, it would be cool to work for Microsoft. It would be cool to work for Google once they became Google. You know, it'd be cool to work for these companies, but there was a lot of things in the way, right? My own mindset was in the way. Now I would never get hired at Google. Uh, my uh, location was in the way. Well, Google is up in Silicon Valley. I can't move up there. I can't work up there, so I can't do that. You know, Microsoft is up in Seattle. I can't go there, right? So I put all of these roadblocks in my way to say, well, I can't work for all of those companies that I would like to work for. So for me, it was simply, oh, a fantasy. Uh, yeah, uh, that'd be cool working for them. But I've got other things that I need to focus on. So then when there was an actual opportunity to work for Google, I didn't even really think about it because I was like, oh yeah, here's another company and they need my help. I'm just going to go apply. And all of a sudden, I remember getting the offer and I was like, holy crap, I'm working for Google. <laughs> this, is, <laughs> this is, But the scenarios are all completely different. I can work remote. I can travel for work. I can go where I need to go to do what I need to do. And I have the skill set now, at least I feel comfortable enough saying, I have the skill set now to be able to do what I do at Google. But it was a journey. It was a lengthy journey, mostly with me being in the way of it. Did you ever have a plan at any stage in that career of like, this is the path that I want to take to get from where I am now to, you know, the next step? rather than, not necessarily the end goal because obviously you've just found yourself at Google seemingly but <laughs> but did you have a like a a plan that you you've woven from working in that computer store yeah i i tell this story a lot and i went from a computer store to working at a movie theater and 
at one point in time, I actually did both. I had two jobs in high school, senior year in high school. I worked part-time as a assistant manager at the software store at the local mall. And then I worked part-time as basically selling popcorn and cleaning theaters at the local movie theater. As I started to spend more time at the movie theater, that was directly hitting my passions, my interests. I liked movies. And so I stopped working at the computer store because I thought in my head, well, you know, this is really not going to go anywhere. And uh, I need a career that I think is going to take me somewhere. And uh, one day I want to direct movies. So I'll stay at the movie theater because that's going to get me to where I want to be directing movies. And so I did a lot of work at the theater, uh, moved up, uh, became a manager, uh, actually started to do some marketing. And, and I learned a lot of business and marketing skills working with that movie theater. And that started to transpire into my degree program at college. Same thing. I was like, well, I'm going to go into uh, television and film production because that's a solid career as opposed to computers because at the college at that time, there was no computer classes. There was very little interest in computers just in general. And I just thought it was a hobby. So what what times are we talking here? This is sort of pre-internet, I presume. Yep. This is uh, 1990, we'll say. 89, 90, 91. Okay. So as we fast forward and the dawn of the internet materializes, I start to see this trend. I start to see that we have a lot of businesses that need websites, and I have this sort of media and entertainment style of background. I know I can create websites because I have the technical skill and I know media. So I'm going to bring all that together and start producing websites, which I did. I built my first website in 1995, and from there... I saw a tremendous shift starting to happen to technology, obviously. Internet boom, lots of things happening, all these startups. And I left the media and entertainment type of mindset and went to college, got my degree in uh, IT, and then went on to get my master's in business. And then this big convergence happened. This uh, convergence of technology and business where business needed to leverage technology to reach a new audience, to get to people, new markets, uh, make more sales, branding, whatever it was, that was what the internet was becoming. And companies were really struggling with bridging the gap between their technology teams and their business teams. Usually, and a, a great story, I went to work at a company once, I was the CTO, and I asked the question, uh, how often does the developers and the technology team talk with the business to understand what we have to produce? And they said, we don't. We just throw our request over the wall and we hope we get a response back. So then I went to the business team and I said, how often do you talk with the technology team to tell them what you need and how it's going to be built? And they're like, uh, never. We just throw it over the wall and hope they do what we ask them to do. I'm like, dudes, <laughs> like, we need to get you into the same room so that we're all talking together so that we can hear what each other needs and wants and how we can be successful. That was really the epiphany, right? That was the moment where I said, 
this is a skill that is lacking in a lot of organizations. This ability to bring the business and the technology together to make these wonderful decisions that are ultimately going to impact customers, create better customer experiences, create better customer demand, and bring customers in. And that's ultimately what I continue to do from, say, the mid-90s all the way to now working at Google. And at Google, this is what I do every day. I talk with customers and we work through those problems and we try to find ways to bring the business perspective and the technology perspective together so that we can create business value for customers. When you started identifying that in the mid-90s, I mean, this is sort of like the the very core of the Agile movement. Is this something that uh, obviously the Agile uh, principles manifesto, et cetera, was 2001. So was there a community Was at the time in the mid-90s? Were there other people with, that were identifying these trends and these issues? I think on some level, yes. Uh, probably a, a few geeky people like us, maybe. You know, what you saw in the 90s was really this exploration phase, right? We're going to explore what's possible on the internet. We had tools like Macromedia Flash that could do all these really crazy things. That's where I first started learning how to program. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Me too. <laughs> you know, we had the beginning stages of different uh, tools from uh, like Microsoft uh, and uh, things that basically allowed you to create web pages with drag and drop. You know, there was a lot of things and it was really all exploratory. The big movement, obviously, in the mid-90s was also blogging because there was no such thing as a blog in, say, 95, but then by 97, 98, 99, all of a sudden you had other services like Blogger and WordPress and, and these Drupal, these, these foundational web properties that we know today all were really in their infancy trying to figure out how to leverage the internet. And so what you would find is you might go to a conference. I remember going to like my first E3 concert conference, which is primarily video games. There was not a lot of people there. And what you started to figure out again was, wow, there's a lot of excitement about what's going on, but very few people who are really in it. If I look at like, E3, Electronics Entertainment Expo, in 1998 versus an Electronics Entertainment Expo in 2010, we're talking about the difference of hundreds of thousands of people, right? Mm, yeah. Uh, and, and so you, you started to connect with people in those very small, intimate settings and talk and and philosophize philosophize sure and <laughs> you know just discuss things and, and i think that's really again if you look at it it was an experimental and a and a growth phase and uh and then obviously it went too fast so we hit the internet the boom yeah. you know pop the boom you know in 2000 the bubble even the dot-com yep. boom and then the dot-com bubble I'm curious when when you when you were when you were identifying that those problems of the, the the teams not talking. I mean, it, it's I think it's one of those age old problems, isn't it? It still happens today on a daily basis that you you know organizations have these problems where organ where uh, different departments aren't talking. 
were people open to having those conversations at that time? Has it has that changed over the over the last sort of twenty years or so? Have, have we gone through cycles of teams want to get together and teams aren't interested? Yeah, I, I think what's interesting you mentioned agile as an example. I think in the nineties, we'll, we'll call it the two thousands. Now, uh, there was definitely a uh, an interest in getting people together to talk about what we're going to build. But there was still a separation. There were still these silos. There was still us versus them. When Agile started to become a thing, and granted, in a lot of organizations, Agile still isn't a thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's the number one development methodology out there on the planet. And you can go to any number of companies and they're like, oh, we can't do that, which is mind boggling to me. But I think when we got agile practices, it was almost like they were forced to start talking together. You you had to bring people together to go through what your backlog was and, and vetting you know, what you wanted to build. The problem of business and technology talking together definitely still exists today. And the silos are still there. And there's still an us versus them mentality. But I think it's gotten a little better because I think people now understand that in order to achieve your business goals, you have to have the right technology team who understands those business goals. So I think the communication is happening a lot more often and collaboration is happening a lot more often. But what it really boils down to, I think, is there's a mindset shift that has to happen. And people, when you talk to them like we are in this capacity, they go, oh, yeah, I get it. Well, why aren't you doing it? I, I don't know. But in the heat of the moment, like just on a daily basis, you go into work. They're not just they're just not thinking in that way. IT has to do their job and we have to do our job. And unless you have it rooted into your culture where you are collaborating on a daily basis and there is rhyme and reason and expectations for that collaboration, if that's not rooted in that culture, then it just doesn't happen because people just are busy and, and they're not thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, and I've experienced this recently as well, actually, with um, I've been working with one company for the last couple of years, and um, we've been going through transformations, but we've actually just had the first sort of on-site, because obviously it's not off-sites anymore, they're on-sites, so the, the rarity of having you know 10 or 12 people in a room and it's amazing how much more stuff you can get through when you are when you have that co-location and actually everybody's heading towards the same goal but i think the the other thing that's interesting around the agile and sort of more lean methodologies is that sometimes i think you talk about people being busy often it can be counterintuitive to make some of the changes and i think i i've seen it quite a lot where people identify there's a problem in the process. So there's a problem that teams aren't talking to one another. And so they will over-engineer a solution to that rather than just getting people in the same room. Is that something you've uh, seen as well? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, th I think the, the biggest... Pro How many times have you gone into a company and you ask, are you agile? And the first response is, yes. The next response is, well, Agile-esque, 
or agile sort of agile light agile agile with a big a or a little a <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh or agile um or agile fall or agile or fragile i think that's my favorite fragile, one, fragile. Right. Yeah. i mean <laughs> the issue is that no one wants to kind of claim that they're doing it because there's probably someone out there who's going to say well you're not doing this one little thing so therefore you're not agile there might be a bit of you know fear of uh, being called out there if people do say they're doing agile. well, well I, i've said i've seen the opposite to that it's like no no we are agile we don't need your help go away and then <laughs> it's like well you, no no you, let, let's poke at that a little bit more are you actually agile you know chris which which sort of came first for you i'm just trying to put timelines here and we spoke about agile being kind of you know 2001 whatever were you saying, you know, these silos need to speak and communicate together and then Agile kind of came into your you know, peripherals and you were like, ha, this is the answer? Or was it kind of like you kind of knew about Agile and you were sort of at the forefront of bringing that to, to people's attention? It, it was the, the first. Actually, quite honestly, I don't care if you do Agile or not. Quite honestly... Agile has nothing to do with if your business is going to actually be successful by collaborating with each other. Agile is a great tool that can help expedite that collaboration. And it's a great way for you to go through the process of producing things that meet needs of your stakeholders. But look, collaboration is simply two people agreeing to sit down and talk. And if you can't do that, there's a bigger problem. And I'm going to go back. You know, you're talking about agile. I, I think really the answer here is every single company out there believes they're different. And because we're different, we have to have a different flavor of agile to meet our specific needs. So they over-engineer and they add all this stuff in because that's how they do business, because they can't possibly comprehend how they could leverage the true agile framework and make that work within their unique environment. The fact is, is not there's not a single business out there that is different. And this is the hardest thing for people to understand, especially in technology, because every single technologist believes, well, we can't do that. We're different. You're not. Here are some examples. Do you have customers? The answer is yes. Every single other business out there on the face of the earth has customers. Do you care about security? The answer is yes. Do you, you know, we can break it down in the most simplest terms. Every single business on the face of the planet is the exact same. If you choose to alter your processes and procedures and how you collaborate and how your teams are structured and everything else, and you want to adapt agile to meet those needs and practices, that's fine. But at the end of the day, you still need to get somebody from business and somebody from technology in the same room so that you can understand what you want to accomplish for your customers. Agree. <laughs> I want to, uh, again, some more, I guess, some more clarification there. I don't know, you, you know, first of all, is your job title digital guru at Google? <laughs> <laughs> or is that just what you call yourself? I, I, that was the first word that came to mind in my intro. My role actually is head of business innovation and strategy. So I talk a lot about innovation and cultures of innovation 
and digital strategies. I really simplify it as I'm a digital strategist. My goal is to really help companies develop strategies so that they can be successful. Mm. And I, I resonate a lot with that because because I would describe myself as a very similar, you know, trying to do something very very similar. But where I'm where I'm struggling to place, you know, your day to day almost is I can imagine a consultant coming in helping them do that with like a specific project or product or something. So what is your kind of day to day at Google having? Well, I, again, I'm just I, I'm trying to place what it is you're, you're doing from a day to day. So it, could you dig into that a little bit? Yeah, so you basically touched on it. It's it's a consulting type of role. My role is actually twofold. I spend a lot of time in marketing, thus my podcast. Um, and I spend time producing the podcast, creating digital strategies on the podcast that we can then share with our customers and listeners. And then my other half is a, a customer consultant. So I do that. I, I will be called in to go into a business, sit down with them, whether it's their executives or a team. If they've got a challenge, they're trying to figure out how to do something. If they've got a new idea and they're trying to figure out how to solve that idea or make the idea reality, if they just need help, I spend time bringing the business and technology teams together to figure out how to collaborate and, and develop these ideas. Uh, digital transformation. It's kind of a cliche word or phrase now, but there's a lot of companies that are trying to go through that digital transformation. And I'll go in and consult with them on how to uh, think about it and, and how they can move forward with that. Uh, so yeah, my role on a day-to-day -day basis is a combination of marketing, digital strategy and consulting with customers and is the goal for from the google's from the the, the, Googles, the google as if as if there is the google that's sort of hidden in a cupboard somewhere the, the goal from google's perspective is that is that to to get more people using google cloud products is that the goal sure why not <laughs> <laughs> is there a more nefarious goal <laughs> no i Look, I, I think all smart businesses engage with their communities and engaging with their your community does a couple of different things. It gets people interested in your products. It potentially gets people to use your products, but it also gives us insight as to what our consumers or what people want. You know, the, the biggest challenge, I think, for a lot of organizations is really diving into understanding consumer needs and expectations, and then adapting your products to meet those expectations and needs. And if you, and, and companies who are doing that very well, like Google, is why all of a sudden you come up with a new product and you launch it and everybody's like, oh my gosh, this is exactly what I needed. Well, you know, we're talking to people about it. Ah, that's really interesting. So it's almost using a certain level of uh, what would be traditionally professional services as um, market research to a degree. Sure, yeah. I mean, there's still market research that I think has to go on, but there's a lot of market research that you can do directly from within your community if you know how to gauge that interest, right? Uh, and which is, again, I think a piece that some companies might not think about. Yeah. I, I think we are leveraging social media a lot now to gauge people's interest and to... Uh, track the conversation 
So that can be a part of your market research. Obviously, we're doing market research from a an industry perspective and customer perspective. You know, you're going to do your traditional polling and surveys to get an insight of what people want. But there is still this level of effort that when we can engage directly with our customers, uh, our consumers, our developer advocacy programs, it's all about continuing to manage that relationship and build partnerships so that as we proceed with those individuals, you know, we just have a closer connection and, and we're able to accomplish more. So with that learning and information that you're, you're gathering, how is that knowledge and learning and information then working its way into Google products? That knowledge is just in your head. Are you, are you then kind of asked to do a report or are you then consulted from within Google to then say, we're thinking of doing this? Well, ask yourself, how is stuff in my head getting extracted by Google? <laughs> they just know. They just, just know. think about it. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that out there for a moment. <laughs> Maybe I'll put it in another way. Data is king. A lot of people used to think content is king. Content is nothing more than data. Data is really the king of everything. Data is in everything we do. Data is basically the world. Artificial intelligence, what you buy at the grocery store, it's all data. Companies who are able to look at, understand, process, analyze data better tend to be more successful. That's why a lot of our products uh, from search to BigQuery is all about looking at data. And so data for Google is throughout our entire DNA. A, a good example of this is that we even have a team at Google called People Analytics. People Analytics is the analysis of data as it relates directly to the people who work at Google. This is done so that we can build a culture that is thriving, that people want to work for, to make Google the best place in the world to work. And we do that because we're, we're looking at the data and we're analyzing it and we're removing the bias in our decision-making. Here's an example. You have a product. You're building a product. And actually, I'll tell a story. I was consulting with a company. It was an e-commerce company. And the CEO came to me one day and said, uh, we are losing sales because people are putting stuff in their shopping cart and they're not finishing the sale and they're abandoning the shopping cart. Okay, great. Very common use case. And the CEO said, I believe the checkout problem, the checkout process is very confusing. And that's why people are abandoning the cart. So let's change the entire checkout process. And I said, well, wait a second. Do you know that that's what it is? Yeah, I'm pretty positive that's what it is. No, do we know that's what it is? Yeah, that's what it is. I'm like, how about if we do a survey, we'll set up a system, we'll ask people why they are abandoning their carts, and we'll send them a coupon. One, if you answer this quick question, you get a coupon, and hopefully we can drive them back to complete that sale with a coupon. So we did that. We received a thousand responses. We had one question and the question was, why did you abandon your cart today? And it was multiple choice. And the multiple choice was checkout process was too confusing. 
the cost of the product was too high. I didn't find what I was looking for. Uh, you know, the information was inaccurate, whatever. I, you know, there was like five multiple choice. We got a thousand responses and it was by far no question. Like 90% of the people said the cost of the product was too high. 1% said it was too confusing, which I think they just clicked on the first response to get the coupon. <laughs> so I presented this back to the CEO and I said, look, the data clearly shows that the price is too high. The CEO's response was, no, I don't believe that. Let's change the checkout process. Now, this is an example of a bias. This is an example of, this is what I believe the situation is or the issue is, and I'm going to ignore the data and I'm just going to do what I want to do. Is that company still in business? No, they are not. <laughs> it's, a great, <laughs> it's a great question. No, they are not. Because that's the key here. If we go back to data is king and you think about like people analytics, there's a lot of times where you might want to make a policy change for your organization and you're thinking, well, you know, uh, we'll take like work from home as an example. Well, we're just going to make a blanket work from home, you know, policy now because that's what people want. Well, that's your opinion and that's a bias. Let's actually ask our employees to see where they would prefer to work. And so our people analytics team actually sent out a survey and they asked a lot of interesting questions. One of those is, where would you prefer to work? In the office or at home? Where do you feel like you're more productive? In the office or at home? And when we got the responses back, what we found was it was actually an even split. There was about 50% that wanted to work from home and 50% that wanted to work in the office. And 50% uh, that felt they were more productive at home and 50% that felt they were more productive in the workplace. And there was other questions. So the policy was made based on the data, not on somebody's initial gut instincts or bias. And if you apply that process across everything you do within an organization, how you manage your products, like in the e-commerce example, how you manage your people, like in the people analytics example, how you manage other things, your processes, your agile, et cetera. If you're doing it in that way and, and removing that bias from your decision-making, you're going to always find that you're going to be more successful. It has proven. This is how Google handles it. This is how a lot of big businesses like Amazon and Microsoft all ha handle it. They look at the data and make decisions based on the data. It's very enlightening that that's you know that this this is how you should be making decisions. What I'm curious of is if Google's out there collecting all of this data, for example, the data that you're getting from going out and speaking to various partners and whatnot. Do you have to be looking at a certain subset area of the data in order to come up with a decision to generate a new product? Do you already have to be looking for where there are gaps in the data? Or do you have any other way of processing that data to identify bigger gaps, if that makes sense? Well, the, the great thing for Google is that we have products that do that for us. Uh, BigQuery, right? BigQuery and, and data analytics is, is designed to process big, large volumes of data from a lot of different sources. So, so how does that get into actually being becoming a new product, though? Like, if you're able to use the data to identify, here's a thing we have spotted, an anomaly in the data, um, a disruption in the uh, 
space-time continuum. How how does that then become? Uh, let's form the product team around this, and we develop a new product, and then we start testing the waters with: Is this actually fulfilling what we thought it should do based on the data we had? Yeah, there's a lot of different ways at Google where we explore ideas and products and things. One of them is what you just outlined. It's exactly what you just outlined. Hey, we found maybe an anomaly in data. We've got this idea. Let's explore it. Let's build a prototype. Let's see how it works. Let's, you know, let's go to market with some concepts, you know, all of that. It, and it doesn't happen overnight. You know, I mean, these are lengthy processes and evaluations. But we also have two other mechanisms by which we come up with new product ideas at Google. And this is all around building a culture of innovation. And this is another challenge for a lot of organizations because typically they have a, we'll call it an innovation team that is assigned to come up with new ideas, whether that's uh, directly associated with your product team or not. It always feels like a bit of an anti-pattern to me, you know. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. It's yeah. an anti-pattern. Every single person within your organization needs to be a chief innovation officer. They need to be empowered to be able to go out and create ideas. And that's what we do at Google. Is There's two mechanisms by which we do this. The first one is very easy. We have what we call a 20% rule, a 20% role. When you get hired at Google, you are hired for a particular job, so we'll call it a senior engineer. You're going to be a, a software developer. And in most companies, that's your role. So 100% of your time, you're working on that role. At Google, we want people to grow and prosper and explore and have opportunities to learn, try new things, innovate on our behalf. And so we create this 20% opportunity. What that means is 80% of your time can be dedicated to the job you've been hired for, and 20% of your time can be leveraged to go off and do something else. That might be learn a new skill. That might be collaborate with another team and join them on a project so that you can learn something. It could be any number of things. And so once you are now empowered to go off and do something, some of our employees say, you know what? I'm a software engineer. I have this skill. I have this really cool idea. I think I'm going to explore it and I'm going to take my 20% time and come up with a new idea. That's not even going through the general data analyst process or the uh, engineering and product definition process or the market research product. This is just one guy, one person, one individual at Google sitting there in their 20% creating something new and then expose it. And what does it do? Maybe it works. Who knows? But if we didn't give them that time to do that, it would never have gotten done. So that's another way that we can create new products. Do, do you think the process of working in Google with this sort of um, culture of innovation, the fostering of innovative skills, does that then create people who are more innovative that could then go and do that elsewhere once they've left Google? And will, will they be more successful? Or is there something a little bit more... Is, is there a difference in your mind between being innovative in Google and being innovative in your own company, for example? No, innovation is the same no matter where you look at it. When we talk about innovation also, it's not always about capturing some lightning in a bottle, right? It's not 
discovering electricity or creating the wheel. When we talk about innovation, it could also mean finding better ways to work. There's a great story of a steel company, and I can't remember the actual steel company, but I believe it's in um, Europe somewhere. And they created a, a suggestion box. And that was all it was. It was just the suggestion box. And in that suggestion box, in one year, they received you know, some 100,000 different uh, ideas. And out of those, they boiled them down to a couple and implemented a couple. And out of the ones they implemented in one year, they were able to save the company over a million dollars in process uh, cost. Now, think about that. Any company out there where you could say, look, I can save you a million dollars a year annually by just making this change, I think most would be like, oh, okay, let's do that. But they came from people that you wouldn't have expected them to come from. And that's the key here is to allow anybody to come up with ideas. Every single one of us have ideas. We're standing in the shower and we're like, oh, that would be a cool idea. Or we're talking with somebody, oh, that would be a cool idea. Some of us come up with more than others. Our entire history is ideas of people coming up with things that have been successful. All you have to do is basically empower that and say, when you're here, you're allowed to come up with ideas. And we're going to listen to those ideas. We're not just going to say, hey, you can come up with ideas and, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks, Joe. Yeah, we'll we'll look into this as, at some point in time. Yeah, Joe, I hope you're listening. <laughs> Joe, you. Yeah, driving in your car right now. The red car. Found to be one of them. Um, with Google being a data, you know, data-driven company, are there any brownie points or any kind of acknowledgement or encouragement to use that innovation time based on data or having some sort of like marriage between those two things? You know, that's a good question. And I would say no, but I do think that your manager, so we'll say like my manager, my manager might guide me and say, hey, what are some of the things that you would like to do for your 20%? I give them a bunch of lists. And then my manager might say, you know, I hear that we are trying to, you know, accomplish whatever. Maybe your interests align with that and you could, you know, work on that. There's also personalities involved here, right? Some people have the personality, we'll call it an entrepreneurial, you know, mentality, uh, personality. They have an idea and they want to go and execute on that idea. Other people, they have the ideas, but they just don't want to <laughs> do anything with them. And then there's other people who, uh, I'll help you with whatever your idea is. You know, I just want to do something different. On our job board, on our, on our internal job board, we actually list our 20% projects. And so I can go just like a job and, and search through them and I can find something and I go, oh, here's some idea on uh, Joe's red car having artificial intelligence. That sounds really interesting to me. Uh, I'm going to apply to this and say, hey, I would like to help. And that's not my idea. I'm just going to help somebody else's idea. And I think I have the skill sets to contribute to that. Uh, so there are, I think, mechanisms in place to help guide us so that we're still collaborating in that process. But most definitely, if, if you're an entrepreneur, 
and you've got the mentality to come up with an idea and execute that idea, no one's going to stop you on that either. I can't help uh, stop thinking about um, Jake Knapp and his book Sprint. And there's the the uh, three-hour brand sprint. But he's gone on and productized and sold those ideas that were either used or developed in Google. I forget the story behind them. How is that relationship? And and is that allowed or encouraged to be able to then profit off of those ideas or anything like that? Yeah, uh, absolutely. And the great thing about uh, Jake's book, Sprint, is that we were able to take that and build internal workshops around it. So, you know, as Google, we could go to a company, you know, we'll pick a company out of thin air, somebody like a Target, and conduct a sprint workshop. So a full one week and just follow the guidelines that Jake outlines in the book. And that's really exciting, right? Because these companies then start to see it not only from a Google perspective, but then they have an asset, this book, that they can go and see as well and, and, and flip through it. And what it really helped inspire, not just for Jake's benefit, but what it really helped to inspire was a lot of these companies were able to start looking at their processes, whether it was agile or the creative process, completely differently. And that had a lasting impact on a lot of businesses that we would go to, because now you're starting to instill some of that culture. And if we go all the way back to what we started talking about, which is, you know, agile is agile, that's fine, but you have to have it rooted in your culture to have this communication between business and technology. Sprint, the book, allowed those companies to start to implement that culture. And for me, if I leave a company after consulting with them and I do nothing else but get them to start thinking about things differently so that they can be more successful, I believe that's success for me. Mm. We started with you being in, a, being in the cinema. We talked about your, your involvement in games and you've, you've sort of carved a path through some of that throughout your career of uh, video, movies, um, you talked about your goal of wanting to direct a movie. Have you managed to do that yet? Uh, no, not yet. One day. I promise you this. <laughs> One day I shall direct a movie. Any studios out there looking for a director, please contact me. <laughs> so, yeah, I've I've been very fortunate because I've been able to merge my passions for film and, and media into my role. So... I've worked for a lot of great companies and studios throughout my career. And the great thing about this was I have the passion and the experience in media and entertainment, and I can then bring in that technology component where it was still the same problem. How do we take technology and leverage that technology to create really unique and compelling customer experiences that are going to ultimately promote the brand of whatever it is. So, you know, everything from something like American Idol to, you know, a, a, a show like Gotham, all of that, even though there's a production element, you know, we're producing a TV show, there's still technology behind that. How do we market that? How do we stream that? How do we get that out to different platforms? What's the experience of streaming? 
right? So I've been really extraordinarily fortunate to take, you know, all the way back to my days at the movie theater and be able to continue to apply that and then bring this element of technology and business together directly into the media and entertainment space. So working in on on that side of things for Fox, I guess it is, isn't it, with American Idol and, and Gotham and things like that. What sort of role were you playing in that scenario? Like where where did you where did you fit in the production versus the actual delivery of the content? Yeah, I was on more of the delivery and and marketing side of it again. So we're talking about supporting you know consumer engagement with our content. Uh, so that ranged from everything from simply the a, a website or a TV show to an interactive website for the TV show. So like in American Idol, as an example, you could log in to a website and see, you know, social media profiles of the contestants and vote for your favorite contestant and, um, you know, and interact in different ways with them, right? So all of that kind of experience, as well as syndicating that content out to different streaming platforms. Uh, at that time, uh, the concept of TV everywhere and being able to get different shows on any device was still relatively new and fresh. You know, you look at it today, I can log into my PlayStation and watch TV, right? I was basically at the forefront of a lot of that strategy in how do we move television from the traditional set-top experience to a uh, multi-platform type of experience across all of our devices. How how do you find a role within an organization like a space for yourself? If you're you you have this sort of mixture of different abilities, because I feel like there's I have some similarities here in the, in in that I I tend to play different roles, and I've got a background that also takes in like similar video on demand delivery stuff for for Amazon and the, and the like, but. I'm curious, how, how do you find a sort of place to sort of slot yourself in and say, like, this is how I can bring people together and these are the various different jobs? Do you, do you sometimes have to, I don't know, do, do you carve out your own role? Do you leave space for others to fill things that you could normally do? Or, I mean, how, how do you slot in? Uh, easily. There's <laughs> <laughs> a long question with a very short answer. <laughs> there are definitely elements of, you know, trying to navigate and, and creating, you know, some elements of my job that are unique for me. But I think here's the one, the one thing that I can leave everybody with or, or the listeners with is that if I look all the way back to my days at the software store or the movie theater, I'm still applying skills that I learned in those roles in my jobs today. And again, we're talking 35 plus years now, right? I think there's a lot of people, especially some of your listeners, who think I have uh, the job is job A, and I have to have skills for job A, and it's got to be a one-to-one -one match. Apples to apples, go and apply. And I just don't think that's fair to you or a reality that we're seeing anymore. All of your skills throughout your entire life are applicable to your career in some way. And if you think about it that way, where even your job from 10 years ago, you've learned something and you can apply that into what you're doing today, I think you have to, you have to add that to your bio or to your portfolio. 
especially for those who are looking to change their career. And I was speaking with somebody a couple of days ago and they said, I've got a degree in fashion, but I'm looking to move into technology. What's your advice? I go, use your fashion experience in technology. And he's, well, I can't do that. Why can't you? Here's some ideas. In the video game space, every single gaming company out there is looking for some sort of person who understands fashion so they can create costumes and outfits for their characters. In retail right now, we're seeing an astronomical impact due to the pandemic where we're getting full-size mirrors where somebody can stand in front of the mirror and see different outfits and how they might appear on you. Somebody who has that fashion sense can have a job in technology. This is not a stretch of the imagination. And I don't think we think about it in that way too much. A lot of people don't. Again, I go back to, I've got a skill in Python, so I need to go find a Python job. If you love Python, go find a Python job and learn Python. That's great. But it doesn't mean that your experience from 10 jobs ago as a server in a restaurant doesn't apply. What's the one thing that a waiter or waitress at a restaurant can bring to every single job that you have in your entire career? Do you know what that one thing is? Communication. You have to talk to people. You have to talk to strangers and customers. You can apply that to sitting around a table in an agile ceremony talking about business and technology problems. But you have to make that correlation. And so for me, that's all I've done is I've built correlations between what I've done in my past to what I can help people do today. And then I leverage that and bring that all around so that as I'm talking and consulting with companies, the strategies and the innovation and whatever, I can't tell you how many times I've sat in a boardroom with an executive and they've said, we want to do whatever it is. And I'm like, oh, you mean like in Lord of the Rings when... <laughs> they're like, what? And I go, yeah, here's the story. My media and entertainment still applies because there's pop culture references or sports analogies or you know any number of things that are going to help you be successful in your career. And that's how I look at it. It's the power of the analogy and the mental model, isn't it? I mean, I've always, I noticed very early on that the, uh, the people who were more senior and more successful seem to have better stories and abilities to actually create analogies and saying, it's like this, you know, because it's a, it's a thing, it's a mental model, a vision that you can get behind and bring everybody on the journey. Yeah, I, I uh, totally agree. And, and you can think about that even in simple, we go back to Python. If you're a Python developer out there right now and you're thinking, hey, I'd like to do something more than Python, think of every single possible analogy and story that you can come up with to explain why Python is incredible. And, and just that storytelling exercise will help you get farther because you can make those correlations between your experience and anything else. Plus, it makes it more fun. You know, to say yeah. that you, you know, I can now bring movie into my development career, you know, I resonate a lot with that. And it's it's very refreshing to hear because, you know, I have a, I had a very diverse education, 
you know, I was actually very angry with the course I was on because I had no direction. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't clear cut. I was doing a bit of editing, a bit of music production, some websites. And now in my, and that was only now I really, really appreciate that diversity because it introduced me to a lot of things. And all of those things have really had an impact on what it is that I do now. And I'm able to just smush those things together. And it's like, you know, it's just more fun for me. So yeah, really refreshing to hear. But I, I do feel like we need to bite. We've heard it a few times now, Chris. What game are you playing? What's what's this? Uh, how is this video <laughs> game nonsense fitting into all of this? <laughs> oh, well, right now, there's two games that are on my uh, computer that I'm switching back and forth between. The first one is League of Legends. New season, season 12, started this uh, past week. So on my climb uh, back through Platinum, for anybody who is playing, you can ping me and try to find me. And then the other game that I'm playing is uh, Star Wars The Old Republic online multiplayer game. And they're getting ready to launch a new update in February. So bringing some additional storylines to that and excited about that. But otherwise, I spend a lot of time on my mobile device just playing crazy games. I Let's see if we can... Uh, the the game that I just downloaded like yesterday that I'm addicted to is called. We'll see how many people start downloading this. <laughs> it's called Downhill. Oh, is that like a 2D thing where you're on a bike or something? Yeah, but okay, this is great. It's called Downhill Smash, and I've got it up on my screen here. So it, they basically, you know, those games, like you just said, you're on a motorcycle and you're going downhill and you're jumping up and you're, and you get to upgrade your tires and things like that. They basically took that concept and angry birds and put it together. So now you're rolling <laughs> down the hill in this like tank type of thing with all these guns and you can upgrade and you're going through and you're killing zombies that are in structures and the structures get increasingly more challenging and wood stone and metal and you've got to upgrade so that you can get through the zombies it's absolutely addictive i'm telling you so uh congratulations it sounds like one of those flash games you would have seen in like the early 2000s or something it totally totally is yeah but also sounds great <laughs> such a chaos so with you, you mentioned the um, the, the Star Wars uh, Old Republic one, and that's a that's an EA game, I suppose. And you were you were at EA, right? So is there a connection that is is there a connection that goes all the way through there? No, unfortunately, no. Uh, I left EA way before that game was produced. My background it was always in massive multiplayer online gaming, uh, so. Uh, that's where my passion is and and I love RPGs so you know Star Wars is a great fit because it's an online game with multiplayers and there's a, a lot of great storytelling involved with it so so when when you when you got involved with the with EA originally what you know was that your first foray into into games because uh, you've got games games companies throughout your your career right so Actually, my very first website that I ever created was a gaming website. And my goal was, crazy as it sounds, my goal was to publish bugs that were in the game to bring awareness to those bugs so that the developers would fix them. 
there's a lot of controversy to this because the developers said, well, just send us a support ticket and we'll fix it. But in that day, very dawn of online gaming and, uh, you know, if you think about even the evolution of games, if you had a Nintendo, if there was a bug in it, I mean, those cartridges still have the bugs in them, right? Burned in. <laughs> yeah, they're features now. <laughs> when, when we started to switch from like cartridge and CD to online, and, and this was the, also the dawn of Agile because we had now continuous development cycles, it wasn't as easy for new online games to get into the routine of how to fix those things. They were definitely not in an agile process. It was in like a waterfall that they were conducting every month, right, for a patch. And so I was publishing uh, bugs and trying to build the developer community. And that was my very first website, 1995. What came out of that was a job offer to EA to help them solve some of these problems, which you know I did for a, about a year or so. And then I moved on to some other things. But I had been, I mean, all the way back into the 80s when I was working at the software store, I was selling video games too. They were there on the shelf. And so games had always just been a passion of mine. And then I did a, a couple of, uh, startup projects here and there. And then I helped start a video game company um, back in 2009. And uh, I've been a part of the International Game Developers Association, which is a great nonprofit. Any of you who are looking to get into the gaming space, you can go join this association and, and they're helping people better understand the, the game space in general, help you find jobs within the game space. A lot of great resources. There's uh, SIGs that are out there to uh, that you can get involved with. So International Game Developers Association, IGDA, where I was the chair for in Southern California for several years. Um, so yeah, I, I've just had gaming in my background, you know, for over 40 years, probably. You said SIGs then. I'm not sure I understand that term. Special interest groups. Ah, okay. SIG, S-I-G. <laughs> Sometimes I, I, I struggle with those uh, TLAs, the uh, three-lettered abbreviation. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, sorry, it's a terrible joke. I should really <laughs> stop using it. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, I think that's fascinating, though, having the idea of a special interest group and places that you can go to find out about it, because I think... I feel like it's a harder industry to understand what skill set you need to get into. Am I, am I wrong in holding that that sort of association? There is a challenge in the gaming industry, and there's a catch-22 that we, uh, the gaming industry tends to want to hire people who have previous game experience. Yeah. Well, how do you get previous game experience if you can't get a job in the gaming you know, company? There are a lot of companies that will hire junior level gamers. Uh, they will tend to be attracted to uh, students who have gone and gotten degrees in gaming or programming in some way around that. The special interest groups are a good way as well, because let's say you have a degree in cybersecurity. There is a special interest group for security of video games. So you could go get involved with that and you can express you know, your uh, background and your interest. And then like I was talking about, 
You just have to start building the bridges. I have a degree in cybersecurity. I love video games. I'd like to have a job. Where can I fit in and start looking for degrees or start looking for companies who are hiring security experts in the gaming space? And they're out there. And, and so, you know, the IGDA is a mechanism by which you can start to build those networks and relationships. Think about it like LinkedIn. And they also have meetups. So you can go to a local chapter within your area and meet up with other people who are either in the gaming space or looking to get into the gaming space and social network, all of that. That's good. I think it's that sort of extracurricular stuff you almost have to do. If you're right at the start of your career, how do you start wedging in to make yourself stand out, I suppose? Like, I, I guess you could probably start by, at least if you'd created your own little game and published it somewhere, you could say, oh, well, this is a little bit of something I did, you know? Yeah, absolutely. There, There's tons and tons of tutorials out there on building your own game, whether you want to build it in JavaScript or if you want to build it in, you know, a, a 3D tool or an engine like Unity or Unreal Engine. I, I mean, you, you could go do it on your own and demonstrate what you are capable of doing and then build a little portfolio that you can take to a job interview. But yeah, it's it's a combination of networking, talking and meeting with people and building your skills. And I think a lot of times people just want to skip over the skills part, but you know, I think it's a critical piece of it as well. Yeah, I think we've we've covered a, a good common theme about people and network throughout this conversation and that, how important that is. You mentioned people. It brings me back to one other idea that I always share. And it's around this correlation and, and building these stories. And that's with this concept of APIs. So APIs, application programming interfaces. And it's a very basic concept. APIs connect systems together and applications together. And for those technical people out there, they know that APIs have a lot more involved with them. But here's the great piece of that. And it brings back what you were just talking about. I always think that application programming application programming interfaces is, is too technical of a term for what APIs are actually doing for us today. APIs are in everything that we interact with. Every single thing you do in your life there's an API behind it somewhere, guaranteed. I tend to refer to them now as application people interfaces because what they're really doing is it's connecting people together through the technologies that we're using. Social media is nothing more than an application people interface. Your ability to order Starbucks and go pick up a coffee, it's a person who's making that order to another person who's fulfilling that order. There's still people involved with all the technology that we end up engaging with on a daily basis. There are still people who are your customers that you have to fulfill their needs and expectations to be successful. And there's still people that are within your business and technology that have to come together so that your organization can be successful. It's all about the people. Application people interfaces. I like that. And I think we've got a name for the show. <laughs> <laughs> I um, 
I think about we're just about ready to wrap up, but I have a I have an interesting. I think that's a good segue to my final question, and that's a, around Web 3.0 and all the rest of it. We we spoke briefly before the call about VR, and obviously Metaverse is a big topic at the moment. As a, as an inno- innovation uh, ambassador for Google, what's your take on Web 3 and and the Metaverse? It's another technology that will get replaced in three years by another technology. <laughs> there we go. You heard it here first. Web 4, Web 5, Web 6, Web whatever. I mean, that's the joys of technology is it's ever-changing, ever-evolving, and it won't stop. Look, if we go all the way back to our like macromedia conversation, you know, we were, we were doing some incredible things with macromedia flash. That got replaced by you know other technologies, JavaScript primarily, HTML4, HTML5, HTML6, HTML7, 8, 9. It doesn't matter. We're just going to continue to evolve technology. And it's going to evolve for really one reason, to meet the people's needs. And that's ultimately what technology does in our lives. I think with the downfall of Flash, websites are a lot less... Uh flashy if you excuse the pun you know we still haven't uh you know i love to what, what about those intros you used to get to a website with all of the dancing things you know hey they're still out there you, you just gotta uh, go on aww <laughs> awards awards website they're they're full of those 3js you know crazy websites the classic ones yeah well thanks very much for joining us chris it's been a pleasure talking to you thank you appreciate it well that was chris hood our first googler maybe Well, next week, we have Laurie Allman, co-founder of Cybexa Security, uh, where we'll be talking about cyber attacks, hacks, and his role in establishing the NATO Cooperative Cyber Defense Center of Excellence as the Secretary General for the Estonian Ministry of Defense. Well, that's something even more topical now than we when we recorded the episode a few weeks back, considering the recent developments in Ukraine. So uh, look out for that one. 